In doing this, I hope that we'll set the table well for our global, our Lanesville Global Missions Forum tonight, remember at 5 o'clock, where we will explain in detail, as well as open up for discussion and dialogue, what we've been going through as a missions team and elders over the last year or so. So as we move to the New Testament this week, remember what we said last week as we continue this train of thought, right? We said the goal and purpose of missions is the glory and worship of God. Goal and purpose of missions is the glory and worship of God. And we talked about this is our goal because, as John Piper reminds us, missions exist because worship does not. Because the, worships, because the, the nations do not worship God, missions is now necessary. So this is our goal. This will be, continue to be our train of thought today as we move into the New Testament. Before we do that, though, let's pray together that God will guide us in this task. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to be here this morning to study your word, to dig deep into your text, to hear from you this morning. Lord, may our hearts, our minds be open to what you would have for us. May we continue to see your deep heart for the nations. May we be reminded of our mission as a church to bring you worship and glory from every tribe, from every tongue, from every peoples. Lord, may that be our joy. May that be our goal, and may that be our honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, last week, we we walked through the history of Israel in the Old Testament to show that even though the method of missions has changed, God's heart for the nations hasn't. And as we ended last week's sermon, we were looking at the exiles in the 8th, the 7th, and the beginning of the 6th century B.C. began to change the method of missions— from a come-and-see model where they would invite people to the temple in Jerusalem to more of a go-and-tell model where they would be faithful to these foreign countries where they found themselves. Well, right before those exiles occur, we stumble upon the story of Jonah that opens with God's call to him in Jonah 1 and 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It as a transitional text this morning for two reasons. One, in preparation, I'm excited that Pete and I will be going through a five-week series on Jonah starting next week. So as a transition towards Jonah, we start with that verse. But also as a transition, as it begins to show us God's call for his people to begin to leave their homes, to leave their country, and go to the nations to call them to repentance and faith. So although we'll talk much more about Jonah in the coming weeks, I want us to see that as we get into the New Testament, God's call for Israel to be a witness to the nations is already beginning to shift from come and see to go and tell at this point in time. And as we read the Gospels, we see that they don't totally get this at first, right? A lot of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, to his apostles, is trying to convince them that the kingdom of God is no longer a nationalistic thing, but is something that is now offered to all of the world. And as we end each gospel account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we stumble upon a Great Commission text in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John. Now, the most well-known of these is Matthew, so let's begin there. But that will only serve 
this morning as a starting point as we continue to look at the nuances of these commissioning texts that appear in each of the Gospels and eventually even in Acts. So we start in Matthew 28 with the well-known Great Commission text. It says there, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. This text in many ways is a good foundation for the rest of the commissioning text that we'll read in the other Gospels in that it gives a lot more detail and it gives a lot more context than the other ones. Now in Matthew 28 here this morning, I want to briefly make note of three things that you see right in the text. First, the Great Commission comes to a church that's worshiping and sometimes doubting. God isn't waiting for his disciples to get it all together, right? If he did, this story would have never happened. We open this scene with a church that's worshiping God, yet some doubted. He's not waiting for us to get it all together. It comes to us as we worship, as we doubt, and as we experience everything in between. So the Great Commission comes to a worshiping and sometimes a doubting church. Second, the basis of our ability to be faithful to this great commission is the authority of Jesus, who is the king of this world. Right? We can be confident and faithful in the ministry we do among the nations since it is under the authority of King Jesus by whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as Lord And it's under that authority that we go make disciples, that we baptize in in obedience to the word, and that we teach all that Christ has taught us. So Christ's authority undergirds our gospel ministry. Right When, When a herald goes out with a message and they say, I'm bringing you a word of news, the person says, by whose authority are you bringing this? Well, we have the authority of Jesus, who is king of the world, who is God of this universe. His authority undergirds our gospel ministry. And third, our confidence in this text, and we saw this right in Joshua 1 a couple weeks ago, is based on the divine presence that will never leave us. We get to the end of the text and it says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is one of the first places where we begin to see that the go-and-tell model that replaced the come-and-see one is actually not really a new thing at all. And what I mean by that is that in the Old Testament, the Israelites were to invite people to the temple in Jerusalem, not because that place was any greater than any other place, not because that place was you know, earmarked in the history of time as Mount Zion as being the greatest mountain in the world. No, it was there that they were to invite people because in the temple was the earthly presence of God. And what we see in the exiles is that God 
in sending his people into exile, actually sends himself into exile. We read in Ezekiel that the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, goes out from the temple. And that's why when they begin to go out into the nations, they are to be the presence of God even there. But they can't quite do it perfectly yet, right? In the exiles, they're still trying to be faithful to the ministry that God's called them to in those places. But now through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we see that this is natural because we now have the Holy Spirit within us and we now are the presence of God here on earth as God's temples. So the come and see model that turned into a go and tell model isn't necessarily a whole new thing. It's just that the temple has somewhat moved. Right? God's presence is no longer just in one place, but is now in each one of those who believe and trust in him. So it is now natural that our missionary mandate to make known the glory and worship of God to the nations is not only possible, but is expected through us who now have God's presence in us. So it's not about bringing people to a place and saying, this is where God is, we now have God's presence in us. And as we go out, we can be faithful to this task because he will be with us even till the end of the age. His authority undergirds it, his presence goes with us, and he gives it to us even when we're doubting, even when we don't have it all together. So in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, we begin to see not only the mandate for us to be faithful to missions, yes, we know that, we've read this text a million times, we know that it's there, but we see our motivations, we see our encouragement, and we see our confidence for being fruitful to this task. We turn the page, right? We get to Mark. We get to the end of the book of Mark and we read something similar. Mark 16, 15, we read this. Jesus says to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now, aside from what you may think about whether or not the end of Mark's gospel is historical to the original text is not important at this time because what's important is to once again see that the end of Jesus' earthly ministry comes with a call for his disciples to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And it's in this text there can be no confusion to what the mission of the church is. Right? So many churches today sit in, in rooms with round tables and strategically plan about what is our mission? What is God calling us to do? And yes, it's going to look different in each context, but we have the mission. We know what God is calling us to do. It is clear in this text. It is to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. If we are to be faithful disciples, then we will be those who proclaim the gospel to everyone, everywhere, for all for the worship and the glory of God. Matthew's made it clear. Mark makes it clear. We turn to Luke. Luke 24, 46 to 48 says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
See, Jesus recites this to them after the text says he's opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which for them would have been the whole Old Testament, right? Everything we talked about last week. So Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures, and he says all of these things are written, right? All of these things are written for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed, not just to you, not just here, but starting in Jerusalem to all the nations, and that they are to be witnesses of these things. In this passage, we see that Christ's understanding of the Old Testament was that the prophecies that spoke to who he was and what he would do were to be proclaimed to, in his name to all the nations, and that they were to do so by being witnesses of all these things to them. The glory and power of God, which has made, been made manifest in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, was now to be proclaimed to the nations by his witnesses, the disciples who now make up the church. So in a way, the testimony of the Israelites to the faithfulness of God in the Old Testament now has flesh and bones, right? They're saying, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. And when we get to the disciples here, they can say, do you need proof that God is always faithful? Here he is. Here he was. Here he continues to be. God's faithfulness could now be pointed to, the per- to in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Since this is the case, we too are now called to explain all of Scripture to the nations, pointing to Christ as the fulfillment of everything that was spoken in the Old Testament, while also bearing witness to its truth and power in our lives. I'll sidetrack here for just a moment. On Wednesday morning, we're going through the book of Hebrews and Bible study. It's been really good. But one of the things that the author of Hebrews keeps warning his audience is you have all the knowledge of Scripture and you've seen all the fruit of the gospel, yet you continue to choose to not follow Jesus. And he says to them that that means that there's no hope for you. What he means by that is if we've given you everything you need to know about the gospel and you've seen everything that it's going to look like, what more could we possibly give to you that you would come to believe? And why I bring that up is here in this text we see that we are supposed to bring the whole gospel to all the nations and be witnesses of the whole gospel to all the nations so that if they decide not to believe, there is nothing on our part that we can say we failed, right? We've given them all the message. We've shown them all the fruit of it. There's nothing more than for the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. So although similar to Matthew and Mark, Luke's account digs deeper into the missionary mandate of the church while also looking forward to what we will see in the book of Acts. We then turn to our final gospel, the gospel of John, which happens to be my favorite gospel and also happens to be my favorite Commissioning text. John 20, 21 and 22, says this after he appears to his apostles post-resurrection. says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whereas the other commissioning texts remind us of the mandate to preach the gospel to the nations, this one reminds us that we are sent in this mission as Jesus was sent by the Father. And that means so many things, and that's a a sermon for another day. 
But what it does mean is this. We do this mission, we are faithful in this mission, based on the example he sets for us in the Gospels, with the same message and with the same sense of urgency that we see in his own ministry. But it also means that we do this through the same power that he did it, specifically through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, hence the reference here for them to wait until they receive the Holy Spirit. See, as we saw in Matthew's Great Commission, if we attempt to do this mission on our own, without God's presence, we will fail. But if we do this through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, being witnesses of this presence wherever we go, we will see the fruit of the task wherever we find ourselves. So in John's account, we see the power that we have in this task, We also see that it's through Christ's message, through his sense of urgency, through the example he sets for us. We see the message, the methods, the means for gospel proclamation to the ends of the earth. So each one of these gospel accounts has given us a different nuance of our missionary mandate, showing us a different, almost a different angle of coming to it. And as we leave the gospels and we head into the book of Acts, we are confronted right off the bat with a similar reminder to what we just read. Right? We turn the page, we get to Acts 1. Acts 1, 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, right before Jesus ascends into heaven to sit in glory at the right hand of the Father, he reminds them of their mission to be witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, but eventually to the ends of the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we read a similar reminder to that in Matthew and John. We are called to take the gospel mission everywhere through the power of the Holy Spirit and keep going with it until we reach the ends of the earth. And it's amazing as you read through the book of Acts how this plays itself out. Right? As, you, as we continue through the book of Acts, we get to Acts 4. And in Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. They heal the cripple as they're going into the temple. They're beaten. They're told to stop. And what do they do? They keep preaching. Sandy, why aren't you up here preaching this? <laughs> they keep preaching, right? They go back. They worship for being counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. And they ask for increased boldness in their mission. So they're being faithful. Right off the bat, we see that the gospel goes out into Jerusalem with such fervor that they eventually have to capture and kill Stephen for his preaching in Acts 7. If you read through the first seven chapters of Acts, you read 5,000 are added, 3,000 are added, several hundred are added. I mean, it is just exploding. But they're still in Jerusalem. We get to Acts 7, Stephen is stoned, Acts 8.1 says, and Saul was there and he approved of this execution. And we read after that, it says in Acts 8.1, and there arose on that day a great persecution in Jerusalem, right? It's getting too big too fast. Great persecution in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
And then in verse 4 it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So not even persecution, not even the death of those who were preaching stopped the news of God's glory going out to all the nations. Instead, it actually strengthened the church's witness. And as you continue to read through Acts, we read about the centurion who believes, and we read about all these people in the, in the, in the uh, areas of Judea and Samaria who are starting to pop up and believe and trust in Christ because of the glory that they see in the God of the universe. They've been witnesses in Jerusalem with thousands coming to faith in Jesus. Now they go into Judea and Samaria where Paul even becomes a believer and churches begin to pop up all over the place. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, after reading of all the ups and downs that are going on with the early church in the first century, we see that Paul has already been able to present the gospel to Roman officials in Italy. We see Jerusalem. We see it break into Judea, into Samaria. And by the end of the book of Acts, the ends of the earth and all the Gentiles are beginning to hear the good news. And I love it. The end of Acts ends like this. Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. Then it continues, Paul lived there, Rome, two whole years at his own expense. That means he had his own place. He was living on his own. He, wasn't a, he was a prisoner, but he wasn't really a prisoner. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, and without hindrance. We get to the end of the book of Acts. Paul is a prisoner for the gospel. He should just, you know, be in the fetal position in some corner somewhere, wallowing in self-pity. But instead, he's living in his own place without expense. He's welcoming all who come. He's preaching the, the kingdom of God. He's teaching about Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He's a prisoner and the gospel is still going out without hindrance. We see throughout the book of Acts the outworking of Acts 1.8. This is almost like a summary statement of what you're about to read when you get to the rest of the book of Acts. Even as a prisoner, as a result of preaching, Paul receives blessings from God that allows him to continue taking the gospel to the Gentiles in every nation. Now, I could go on and on. I could read a million more texts. But as we get to the end of the Bible, we actually get a sneak peek at what the end product of our missionary mandate will be, right? Sarah read it this morning in our call to worship. We sang about it in our worship. When we are faithful to this task, John describes a scene like this in Revelation 7. Yes? No? No Revelation 7? No Revelation 7. Okay. If you want to open to it, it's awesome. Revelation 7. Again, Sarah read it for us in our call to worship, so we already know it a little bit. Revelation 7. Starting in verse 9, John describes the scene like this. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation... From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I won't, I, we could continue to read. We could read that whole chapter. It's awesome. But here is the picture, right? Here is the end product. Here is what we're aiming for. We're aiming for, and we look forward to, and we long for the days when we could sit in a room like this, or let's, let's, let's be fair, I'm sure heaven will be a little bit nicer than a room like this. Nothing against this room, but it's heaven, let's be fair. We sit together, and it's not just us. It's people from every tribe, from every nation. From, and I, I think of it probably like the beginning of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes and descends on them, and they're all speaking different languages, but they understand each other. Right? It's not, we're all singing in different languages and we go, I can't really participate in this unity because I don't, we're all worshiping and we're all singing the same song and it's all in our different languages and we're all doing it through our, in our different contexts through the different ways we like to worship and we understand it and we know what it is. As we go out into the world with the gospel messages, we're making God's glory known to the nations as we're calling them to worship him, we are longing for the day when what we just read in Revelation 7 is what we will see. Yet, as we've looked around at the state of the world, we have realized that although every country may have received the gospel, there are many tribes, there are many peoples, there are many languages that yet do not know the gospel. So with the mandate we've laid out, starting in Genesis last week, all the way to the end result we see here in Revelation, when Christ comes again, There can be no question to the mission of the church today and for us as disciples of Jesus. As we've said numerous times over the last two weeks, right, the goal and purpose of missions is the glory and worship of God. Yet we sit here this morning and we know that this has not completely happened yet. Right? The nations are not all before God singing his praise, glorifying him, worshiping him. There are numerous people groups all over the world who have never heard the gospel. Many of those people, by God's grace, have even begun to live in our own country. But we also know that we, as a small church in Lanesville, we as individual people, are incapable of reaching every single one of them with the gospel by ourselves. So instead of looking at, the, looking at the big picture and saying, it's just too big for us, let's let other people do it, we as a church over the last several years have been asking the question, how are we called to be most fruitful and effective in this task of bringing God's glory and his worship to the nations? If we can't reach them all, how can we be most fruitful? This is primarily what we've been discussing as a missions team and as elders over the last year. What are we called to do to be the most fruitful and effective in response to this missionary mandate? And what we've come up with is what you've all had a week to read in your Lanesville Global booklet you received last week and what you will hear at greater length tonight. So we ask that you would do your best to commit to coming tonight to be able to join this process with us but also to add your own thoughts. And I think most importantly, to dream big about how Lanesville Congregational Church in Gloucester, Massachusetts would continue to be the hub 
by which the nations hear and respond to the gospel of God. It is amazing when we hear stories back from our missionaries of people who have come to know in the power and the glory of our God because of the work that began here. And we have an opportunity to continue to do that and to do that more effectively and more fruitfully through this new Lanesville Global vision that we've put together. So we ask that you would commit to this with us. And again, if you're able to come tonight, be a part of this, discuss this with us, have your own thoughts, because we know the mandate. We did two weeks on the mandate, and let's be fair, we could do more and we could have done less. What I mean by that is we know the mandate. Now the question is, how do we as a congregation and as individuals here go about being as fruitful and effective as we can? Because this is a great privilege for us. May the Lord use us for his glory to bring worshipers from every nation to his throne so that we can celebrate with the Apostle John in the scene that we just read in Revelation 7 as we see this great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, and people, and language standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches of peace in their hands. And may we cry out with them, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is our mandate. This is our privilege. May we see it as such and may we be faithful to it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that although you could have gone out into this world, that you could have made a people for yourself without using us, that you could have gone and done it all a different way, Lord, that you delight in using us. Lord, you delight in using us, a worshiping church, but sometimes a doubting church, a faithful church, but Lord, not always. And we are so thankful that we have this privilege. We are so thankful that we can be used in this task. And most importantly, we're thankful that we don't have to do it alone, that we have your authority that we have the power of your Holy Spirit within us, that as we go out from here with your word, we don't have to convince people that you are here, Lord, because we are witnesses of your presence, that we are taking your presence to this world. And Lord, you are already in this world doing works before we even get there. Lord, use us. Use us well in this task. May we delight in this end times vision of the whole world worshiping you as Lord and Savior. May that be what we long for. And in that longing, may that motivate us as we go out from this place to be faithful to gospel ministry to our neighbors, to our families, to our co-workers, to people we come in contact with, to refugees, to internationals, to other countries. Lord, wherever you would have us, may we be faithful for your glory and for your worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.